Let's have some more time for the Lord's help. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging our need of you. Oh, Father, we need the spirit that you have that dwells within us. We need him to stir it up. Father, we need him to um, cause us to pay attention, to understand your word, to give us a willing heart to be teachable. And Lord, um, a heart to admit when we're wrong. Father, we trust you to rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. And Father, we pray that you'd help us um, in our training of our children and in our relationship with other people that uh, we might establish biblical relationships for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about kind of God's overarching goal. If you remember, we talked about the fact that before the foundations of the earth, God chose a people that he would make into the very image of his son so that the son would have a people that would worship and glorify him. We talked about how the father seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that we, we also talked about the fact there aren't any of those people out there. The only reason we're here is because God did a, a change in our heart. He regenerated us by the power of His Spirit, and He has caused us to become worshipers of Him. We talked about the fact that child training is really underneath the umbrella of discipleship. God's goal is that all people become made in the image of Christ, and that happens in relationship with other believers and in relationship with the Spirit and with the Word of God. And that child training is under that umbrella, and that parents are the first, really the first line, first responders in discipleship of their children. Why? Because they're with them 24-7. There's no other relationship like that, where you're with someone 24-7. Even most discipleship relationships where you think of Bob discipling certain men, or other men discipling men, or women discipling women, they're not together 24-7. This is the most intimate of relationships. And we talked about the fact that father and mother are called to be responsible for the training of their children. They're the primarily, primarily responsible. They're not solely responsible, but they're primarily responsible. The church also has a role in, in that through the teaching and preaching of the word and through the interaction of mature believers with immature believers. And we're all immature and we all need that interaction and we talked about that this is a great enterprise, and even though it seems daunting and exhaustive in its scope, which it is, let's just be honest, we could spend all day making a list of all things we need to train our children to do, but we have great hope because what? God has predestined those he saves to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's God's plan, and he puts his power behind it, he's promised in Matthew 28, that he'll never leave us or forsake us in this process of making disciples, so we have this encouragement that we're not in this on our own. And thirdly, we're grateful that he implants the Spirit of God in all those that he wants to conform to his image. And so we're not just working with, a, with we start off working with an unrepentant sinner, and the goal at some point is that God will be gracious to them and cause them to repent and trust in Christ. And then they'll have the Spirit of God, and then progress can really begin to move forward. That's the goal. So today what we want to talk about, the title of the message is Biblical Relationship. And everybody has their notes out, right? <coughs> Biblical Relationship is the foundation of child training. Biblical Relationship is the foundation of child training. I didn't just say Relationship. Because there's all kinds of relationships between parents and children. A lot of them are not biblical. And we're going to talk about that as we move down the road. In a book written in the 1950s, Unraveling Juvenile Delinquency, two Harvard sociologists, who we wouldn't trust to be biblical, developed a test that proved to be 90% accurate to determine whether or not five- and six-year-olds would become delinquent. And this is the test. They discovered 
that the four primary factors necessary to prevent delinquency are, number one, the father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. Number two, the mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Three, the parents demonstrated affection for each other and for the children. And number four, the family spending time together in activities where all participate. What a surprise. As long as they read from another book, doesn't it? So what were those? The father's fair, consistent, and firm discipline. Based, we would know upon what? The Word of God. Two, the mother's also discipline and nurture and admonition and love. Three, the demonstration of affection and love between, between the parents and the parents to the what? children, and four, the activity of all the family together, enjoying life together. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, Paul gives us a very short, four-sentence um, declaration of a lot to unpack. We will not unpack it all today, okay? But let's look at it. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So imagine you're a child, you're in a church in Ephesus or Laodicea, this letter probably rotated to several churches, you're sitting in the congregation, and the leaders of the church come up and they pull up a sheet of paper, a papyrus, and they open it, and they say, we just received a letter from the Apostle Paul, and he has written to us, and right here, as we're reading through, your children, you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you hear the word children. Paul directly talks to children, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And then he talks to fathers. And in the context, he's talking to parents. So, this, well, obviously we understand that fathers are the primary responsible ones in the home, but they, praise God, have a helpmeet. And all men said, praise God that we have a helpmeet. And if you have, you're not saying that, you will. Okay? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want us, we need to get this in a bigger context, so let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, Ephesians 1 talked about this grand plan where God chose these people, remember? And the purpose was to make them holy and blameless. And then he talks in chapter 2 about how he rescued those people, and he took them as who were children of wrath and made them children of, of God. He comes down to chapter 5, and look what he says. Therefore, in, chapter, in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we do that? We walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Then he goes through and gives them some admonitions to avoid sexual immorality and impurity and filthy talk and jesting and all these type of things. He gives an admonition, and then he comes down to verse 15. Look at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best of the use of time, because the days are evil. That's a great passage all by itself, but it's in the context of what? Being imitators of Christ, of loving each other. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. I want you to notice three actions that come as a result of that. First, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if we're filled with the Spirit, what should that look like? It should look like addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, worshiping together, giving thanks always, and what? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now he takes three snapshots. There's a picture of a wife and a husband. There's the picture of children and parents. And there's the picture of the slave and the master. And he, let, he tells us in this passage how each is to respond. Now what's interesting about these passages is, it's not just addressing the person who's supposed to submit. Look at the first one. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. But he doesn't just stop there. He tells husbands to do what? To love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he gives an admonition for the wife to submit. He gives an admonition for the husband on how he is to relate with her and love her as God has set forth. It's amazing how a lot of men just stop at the first part. There's an admonition both ways. The man has to submit himself to the Lord and follow the Lord's requirements for how he, how he loves and takes care of his wife. Okay? Now we get to, let's go to the slave master. He tells the slaves to obey their master as if they were obeying Christ. But then he turns around and tells the master what? You need to be careful how you treat your slave. Because you are a slave to God. And your relationship with your slave, just because you are the one who's the head, doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. The same with husbands. You can't do whatever you want. You must do it what's regulated by the Scripture. The Scripture regulates these relationships. Okay? Now, the same thing is true in Ephesians 6. Children are told what? To obey their parents in the Lord for its right. Right in whose eyes? God's eyes. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So the children have been given their admonition. Notice the admonition to the to the father, particularly, and the and that is understood to be to the parents as well. Notice the admonition. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why does he put do not provoke them to anger first and then say and then train them up discipline the discipline and instruction of the Lord? May I say I think the reason for that is um, because discipleship always happens in relationship. Child training happens in relationship. If you don't have a good relationship with your child, there is not going to be any child training of significance take place. Or it's going to be bad child training. Okay? And what is important is the relationship that's established. If you, don't, if you go to Colossians 3.21, he doesn't even talk about he doesn't even talk about training your children in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, he simply says this. In verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is important. How we treat our children, how we relate to them, is critical in whether we're ever able to disciple them. Where we're ever able to train them in the ways of the Lord. The word for do not provoke your children to anger, the do not provoke, is it's a continually, do not continually provoke your children to anger. 
It's not just a one-time thing. This is a pattern of life where you're constantly provoking your children to anger. You're constantly causing your children to become discouraged. You know, being in education, I've seen a lot of 11, 12, 13-year-old children. And I can tell you, it doesn't take long to figure out which ones have been provoked to anger and which ones are no longer connected to their parents. And they're really already gone from the house. They're just waiting for the chance to get their car so they can leave. The relationship is gone. There is no more instruction going on. We're all required as teachers to call the parents. In those situations, it does absolutely no good because guess what? There is no connection between the two. The parent will be upset. The parent will be yelling. The parent will be screaming at the child, at us. The reality is there is no relationship there. This is not to say that every situation in which a child has no relationship is, is all the parent's fault. Because children are also sinful people as well. But notice where the emphasis is put. The emphasis is put on fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Now, we live in kind of a Christian context in our own little bubble, while the rest of our culture is heading a different direction. But in Rome, this admonition would have been foreign to their ears. In pagan Rome, this idea of fathers not provoking their children to anger or discouraging them would have been completely unknown. Patria potestas, Latin for patriarchal family, was the idea in Roman law that the father and virtual life, father and the virtual life and death power over everyone in his household. The father had that power of life and death over his household. Not just his slaves. He could cast them out of his house, sell them as slaves, or kill them without any repercussions over the civil authorities. So a newborn child, when it was born, was laid at the father's feet. If the father picked the child up, he became part of the household. If the father just walked away from the child, he was discarded, or she was discarded. The healthy children were taken to, to the town center. And there they were picked up to be trained to either be slaves or prostitutes. Harsh, isn't it? So Paul's admonition for fathers not to provoke their children to anger is like way up here compared to the culture in which they live. We're, we're not that far from that, are we? In our culture. We were at the abortion clinic a couple of weeks back. And I remember a man drove up, dropped his wife off, got in the car to drive away. I went over to have a conversation with him. He had just dropped his wife off to what? Discard his child. And his admonition to me, colorful admonition that it was, was don't harass me. We're quickly becoming a people that have no compassion for our children. But what God's saying here is, Christians, it should not be that way with you. As a result of being filled with the Spirit, you should function in a different way. I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm calling you to, to, to live with your child in a way that will provide blessing and discipleship and encouragement and all these things. The biblical view of child training is the following. One, children are a blessing. My question is, to whom primarily? Who are they a blessing to whom primarily? To the Lord, okay? They are his. So they're primarily a blessing to him, and they're secondarily a blessing to who? Parents. You know, I'm watching parents in our, in our age now who are getting ready and watching their children get married. And it's difficult. Because they're now, the reality of these children not belonging to them is beginning to become a reality. And it's difficult, isn't it? 
to let them go and start another household. And because you spend all this time training them. For what purpose? Hopefully to serve the Lord. Okay? So first, children are a blessing, primarily to the Lord and secondarily to us. Two, child training is that parents do not own their children, but are God's steward of them. Do we understand that? These children are not yours. You've been made steward over them. And this is what comes out of this passage in Ephesians 6, isn't it? God is giving you instructions of how to take care of whose children? His children. Okay? Three, uh, child training is that parents, biblical, the biblical view of child training is that parents exercise God's authority over children for his purposes, not theirs. The parents have authority, but who do they receive that authority from? God. They receive that authority from God, and that authority is to be carried out in a certain way that God has been careful to legislate throughout His Scripture. A lot of us, a lot of people think that because they're the parent, they have authority to do whatever they want to do. No. No. They are under the authority of God, and they will be held accountable. A father in the Old Testament times, was responsible to bring his daughter to the altar pure. That was his responsibility. And if he didn't, and she was found to be impure, they took her to his doorstep and killed her. He had responsibility to take care of the purity of his daughter. But whose daughter was she? She belonged to the Lord. And finally, the biblical view of child training is that parents must submit to God in how they raise their children. In order for biblical child training to take place, children must be treated in accordance with the scriptures. If we're to build a biblical relationship in which discipleship can take place, it must be built according to the scriptures. This will establish a healthy parent-child relationship that will allow for the discipline and instruction of the Lord to take place. Without that, it's difficult for that to take place. In some places, it's impossible. Let's look at some types of parents who provoke their children to anger or discourage them. Some of these ideas came from The Faithful Parent by Stuart Briscoe and Martha Peace. Uh, and some of these were just ideas... Um, we can all make a list. This is, this is not an exhaustive list. We'll just try to hit the top ones, all right? Now, as we go through this list, let's ask the Lord to show us ourselves in these, in, these, in, these, in these models, okay? I wish I could say that none of these models apply to me. I will not say that. Because at various times in my life, uh, I have been many of these, all right? And we all probably have been many of these. Just want everybody to enjoy being together in this, all right? <laughs> all right? Okay, the first model is the proud parent. We've got about 11 of these, okay? The proud parent. This person, uh, it's all about themselves. And their children is really all about them. And... They will not admit they're wrong about anything. They'll never admit it. It becomes obvious what they've done. Even when their children bring it to their attention, they will not admit they're wrong. Their motto is, do what I say, not what I do. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? They're blind to their own sin. And if there's ever a problem, whose fault is it? The child or somebody else's? but it's not theirs. Okay? And the scriptural rebuke for that is 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Somebody can look that up for us. And James 4, 6. Okay. 
First Peter five, five and six. First Peter five, five and six. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay. So humility. Humility. How, how can you parent in a way that will be able to be child training? You're going to have to have humility. Humbling yourself under God's law and doing what God has called you to do. Mm -hmm. And ask forgiveness when you're wrong. That's huge. That's huge. That goes a long way with children when you're willing to admit that you're wrong. Absolutely. That's a sign of humility. Okay? The Pharisees were great at preaching. What did, Peter, what did Jesus tell the, his people? Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Because what they say and what they do don't line up. Okay? So we have the proud parent. Second, we have the hypocritical parent. Okay? They act one way in public and another in private. Their religion is for show. And sometimes you don't see what's happened in this relationship until all of a sudden the kids start leaving. Or bad stuff starts happening in the household. And you can't imagine it because in church and in front of everybody else, there's this form of what? Of a Christian life and a Christian family. But behind closed doors, something else is going on. Okay? Uh, Matthew 23, 2 and 3. Do we, do we get James 4, 6 for the last one? Who has that for us? Okay. But he gives, a, he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay. And what do we need in, in child training? We need grace, don't we? We need lots of grace. We need truckloads of grace as we train our children in the ways of the Lord. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. Yes, go ahead, Bob. They and the scribes and the Pharisees that seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Okay. As a parent, to, to be able to disciple your child, you have to be doing what you say. And no one does that perfectly. I'll, I'll fully admit that right front. No one does that fully. But that needs to be the goal of our life, is that we are what we're calling them to do, we're also doing. We're also a part of that. Uh, and then 5 through 7. Five through 7 says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. They wanted to fast and let everybody know about it. They wanted to pray on the street corner. They wanted to give where the trumpet would sound. They didn't want to give in secret. They didn't want to pray in secret. They didn't want to fast in secret because they wanted the praise of men, not the praise of God. Here's a question for us, parents. Are we the same at church as we are at home. That's a test whether we're whether we're being hypocritical or not. Okay. Okay, so we have the proud parent, we have the hypocritical parent. Number three in the running is the controlling, angry parent. Uh, they're all destructive. This one is quite destructive. Um, It's my way or the highway. Anytime something doesn't go their way, there's an explosion. And they learn to control their whole family by their outbursts and their anger. And they found that it's very effective. That everybody gets in line when they blow up. When they, when they vent their full rage and wrath. But the destruction to their family is, is, is beyond measure. 
angry words, overly controlling. This is not, this is not in line with Scripture. Again, our child training is not based upon what's effective. It's based on what's biblical. And it may have an effect, and it may get everybody in line. But in, the, but in reality, what you're doing is setting up a pattern that will be passed on from generation to generation to generation. Look at the scriptural rebuke for this. Proverbs 22:24. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Proverbs 14. There's a, there's a whole lot of these. We just got a few. Proverbs 14:29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. James 1.20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you think that you just have a little more passion when you discipline your child, if you just get a little upset and you start bending your anger, that's going to make it more effective in your child training, you're wrong. Quite the opposite is true. And it's easy too. You told them a thousand times and here they do it again. And you pop your cork and you look for something to, 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 to practice the rock, you've got to be biblical about this. No. The anger of man does not bring about what? The righteousness of God. It's not going to produce that fruit. It may produce conformity. It may get them to make your life a little easier for a while, but it's not producing what God wants. 1 Peter 5.3 talking to the elders. And we're going to look a lot at elder and parent because they both, same role. One, elders are over a church. Um, parents are over the family. But look what he says to elders. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In the control of your household, men, is it because people are following your example in the home? Or is it because you have to dominate them to make them do what you want? If it's the second, there's a problem. Maybe there isn't an example for them to follow. Or maybe you've not been consistent in your discipline according to the scriptures. Okay? And then right along with this is number four, the abusive parent. Physically and verbally. This was also, obviously, number, number three fits in that same category. The scriptural rebuke is James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You see, to be a, to be a parent who has a biblical relationship with their child, they have to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Therefore, it's not about their agenda, it's about God's agenda. If it's about your agenda, you are going to get upset, and you are going to get angry, and you're going to be verbally abusing your children, and possibly physically abusing your children, because you don't need to be in control, God needs to be in control. Child training is not easy. Child training is not easy at all, uh, and the thing about child training is it's really child training and parent training together. God works these relationships. Notice all these couplets. Wife submits to husband. Husband loves wife. Slave submits to master. Master cares for the slave. Child honors and obeys the parent. Parents do not provoke their children. Both relationships are being what? They're, they're, they're sanctifying relationships. The goal is that the parent becomes more like who? Christ. It's not just about the child. He needs to become more like Christ. He definitely needs to become more like Christ. What about you? Have you arrived? No, you haven't. Remember one mom saying, I never knew I had an anger problem until I had kids. 
Welcome to the club. It's, you know, it's a whole different thing. So these relationships are meant by God to make everyone become more like Christ. But we have to follow the biblical guidelines that he gives us. Ephesians 4, 29 and 31. And verbal abuse is unbelievably damaging. It is unbelievably damaging to the children. I've seen situations where children still, as adults, are trying to deal with it. Still trying to get over it. Still trying to believe something different than what they were told by their parents. Ephesians 4, 29-31 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who fear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Does your conversation build up in the home? Or do you every once in a while go on a little rant and just tear down everything you can while you're doing it? None of us are above that. We still, we still have a sinful nature we're having to deal with. And only by the power of the Spirit within us will that be brought under control. Number five, the sporadic, inconsistent, preoccupied parent. I kind of put all those together. Okay? Um, and a lot of us struggle with being consistent, don't we? We've got so many things going on. Child training kind of becomes second, third, fourth down the list. Um, the child's trying to figure out which rules we're playing by today. Yesterday I got spanked for doing this. I'm now going four days without getting spanked for doing this. When's that going to happen again? What's going to happen? And so just, it's just like trying to play a game where the rules always change. This really is a matter of um, parents have forgotten that they are charged before God to train their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's given you children. Children are a priority. Children take time to train. And sometimes we're just so busy with other things that we just try to put a patch on it. It takes time. It takes time to deal with children's hearts. It takes time to give out appropriate discipline. It takes time to hear children. It takes time to build a relationship with children. And that's one of the problems with being too busy, is that you don't have the time to spend with your children that you need, to lay the foundation you need. Number six, the unforgiving parent. When your child does something wrong, do you end up unloading everything they've done for the last 15 years? You're still doing the same thing you've been doing. I've been telling you now for 15 years, you should be doing such, 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 such. And just back the truck up and just unload. Is that forgiveness? No, it's not forgiveness. We think it's effective because we've got them all shamed. But if they've done this event, what should we deal with? This event. Forgiveness should happen in each of the situations prior to that, right? That we should forgive our child for all the things they've done they shouldn't have done. Because who has forgiven us? The Lord has. And that's what's hard about all this, isn't it? We're sinful people dealing with the sin of our children who are just like we are. So that should cause us to deal with them what? Gently, shouldn't it? But an unforgiving parent has forgotten that. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Who has that for us? And I need 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Okay. This admonition was what? For the church, wasn't it? But it's also for what? Parent and child, isn't it? Okay. How's a child going to know forgiveness if you never give forgiveness? How are they going to know that God forgives? Where's that concept going to come from? Again, who, whose place are you standing in? Parents? You're standing in the place of God, aren't you? You're his representative to those children. And you're to represent to them how God's going to treat them. That is, do we understand the high, holy calling that is? You're not just on your own 
establishing your own little household for your own little, your own little agenda. You are standing in the place of God, and He's giving you guidelines of how to do it, and He's giving you the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5, to fill you and control you. And are you going to do it perfectly? No. Let's just get that on the table right now. We're not. But, we should be able to go to our children and ask them to forgive us when we don't. Shouldn't we? And we should deal with them gently as we want God to deal with us gently. Okay? Some of us wonder why kids never come to us with anything. Because when, when they do, unload. Back the truck up. List all their sins for the last 15 years. And how could you possibly have disappointed me? It's not about you. I'm sorry. It's about who? It's about him. And how has he solved that problem? Christ came and died for this sin. Are you communicating that to them? Are you communicating the gospel to them? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. unbelievers. However, apart from the Spirit of God controlling us, do we not manifest those things? Yes, we do. Number seven, the perfectionistic parent. This parent can never be pleased because no matter how hard the child tries, this parent can always find a flaw. If the wall is painted white, they can find the black dot. If you've ironed your clothes, they find the wrinkle. If you wrote an essay, they find the misspelled word. Nothing wrong with pointing out error, but is that all we do? And the impression is, be perfect as who's perfect? Then you're not perfect, are you? Jesus talked about this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were great at pointing out people's faults. Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, um, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to, to move them with their finger. Are you constantly loading your, your child down with things they, they can't possibly measure up to? No, nothing wrong with having a standard of excellence. Nothing wrong with requiring things to be done properly. But do they ever hear, good, well done, son, good job, sweetheart? Do they ever hear that come out of your mouth? Or is it always a list of how they didn't measure up? Again, you're, you're standing on representation of who? God. They need to hear that they're loved. They're loved in spite of their failures. Doesn't mean we don't try to help them have excellence. <laughs> But there's some parents who become complete perfectionists at this. Number eight, the despairing, discouraging parent. This parent has no hope, and they make sure nobody else in the house has hope. Okay? Life is gloomy, life is bad, it's been difficult, and they may have had a hard, they may have had a hard home life themselves. Uh, they never give encouragement. When you come in the house, it doesn't take long before the cloud just settles in. Let's be honest, there's, there, there's families... There's family, there's, there's a, you know, our extended family. There's a certain extended family we don't want to go spend a whole lot of time with. We're there for a day or two and the cloud starts coming over. And now we remember. Now we remember why we were grateful to get married. Not because we loved our wife, but because what? We got out from under the clouds. Is that, that's living, that's living as an unbeliever. Psalm 25, 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. Do not be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Number nine, the child-pleasing parent. Again, all these are aberrations of biblical relationship. There's all a problem with all of these. 
These parents are afraid of exercising their God-given authority because they are more concerned about what their children think than what God thinks and has commanded. They are really codependent upon their children. And therefore they can't even, and for whatever reason it is, they cannot stand to have their children reject them in any way, shape, or form. And therefore, what do they do? They give their child everything, which is exactly what they don't need to do. They're easily manipulated by their children. They have an inordinate need for their children's love and approval. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 is the rebuke. But Paul's talking. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but please God who tests our hearts. Why was Paul effective as a God, as a, as an apostle? Because he was not afraid to speak the truth. Because he knew he'd been charged by God. Parents were charged by God to speak the truth to our children. They're not they they are sinners. They're not going to always like it. They're not going to like their discipline. We need to help them learn to accept it. But if you're all about pleasing your child, you're not doing what God's called you to do. Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of John and Charles, raised 17 children. The parent, she says, who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the renewing and saving a soul. Helping to deal with the self-will. The parent who indulges the self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impracticable, salvation unattainable and does all that in, his, that in him lies to damn his child, soul and body forever what are the children supposed to do in the first part of Ephesians 6 honor their father and mother which means obey their father and mother which means obey the scripture our job is to teach them to what love God and obey the scripture if we teach them to love themselves, are they ever going to turn to God? It's going to be difficult. Number 10, the comparing favoritism parent. This one's another destructive one. Do we not remember the story of Joseph and his brothers? Why were Joseph's brothers so upset with Joseph? Because Jacob just was so excited that Rachel finally had a child. Because Rachel's the one he loved over Leah. That was a problem. That Leah was there was also a problem. There's lots of problems. And then he puts his affection upon Joseph to the point that his brothers try to kill him. Or how about just let's go down it, let's go down to the story of Jacob and Esau. Dad loves who? Esau, because he fixed that meaty game that he just loved so much, and mom loves who? Jacob, so you have a house divided. Don't show favoritism. Don't um, compare. All your children are different. Do not compare one child with the other. Well, Johnny always eats his beans. Big deal, you know. Or he's always, you know, this, he's always been faithful. And you, you know, just deal with their sin. Don't deal with their sin in context. The Bible says don't compare yourself with each other. And parents don't do that. You're setting up siblings to never be friends again. And we saw that with Jacob and Esau. James 2, 1-4 talks about not showing favoritism to those who are rich in the congregation. It's not our job to do that. We're to treat each one the same. And finally, the unloving parent. Either the parent who loves his child but never expresses it, or the, child who, or the parent who expresses it but really doesn't love the child. Your love needs to be both word and action. It's a horrible thing for a child to be raised with parents who really just love themselves and don't love their child. Okay, if your parenting is habitually marked by some of these more serious patterns, you may need to examine whether you have, in fact, become a follower of Christ.
if we're really behind closed doors, it's a war zone. And yet when you get to church, everybody's got their smile on their face. If you can't control your anger, if you're, if you're constantly, if you're not forgiving of your children for anything, if you're constantly holding it over them, if you're constantly manipulating your children, you need to say, hey, I thought I was a Christian, maybe I'm not. At least entertain that conversation in your own heart to see if that be true. Okay, let's look at a good job description for parents. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. You say, well, well, Mr. Renfro, it's uh, that's about elders. Mm-hmm. It is. You realize according to the scripture that no one should be an elder if he hasn't been faithful in his home. Look at the qualities seen here. These are not superstar qualities that are way out and beyond. These should characterize mom and dad. Okay? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach means there should not be anything glaring that just becomes obvious why he should not be an elder. The husband of one wife, he loves his wife, there's that love relationship there between the two, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Does a parent not need to be able to teach? Absolutely. Because we're going to get into that next week, the whole issue of what are we going to teach our children? What's God calling us to do there? Not... A drunkard, not violent, not a drunkard, not controlled by... Remember, the, remember in Ephesians 5, it said, Do not be controlled with wine, which leads to what? Debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. There seems to be definitely some responsibility for the parent that he functions in a way where his children can submit, enjoy. Okay? For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So imagine one of these models being operative in a home and then that person being exalted to this position of elder. How would you like a controlling, angry elder? There are some. And that's why you see people come in the door and go out the door. And the door revolves. Or someone that never forgives. Or someone that's all about themselves. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit. What's that called? Pride. Mm -hmm. The proud parent. Or he may become uh, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into the disgrace, into the snare of the devil. In other words, his outward life needs to be above reproach. Deacons are not getting off the hook. Likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that both the elder and deacon have to have what kind of households? Households that are in order. Not perfect, but households that are in order and households in which there is submission between the parents and the children. 
That has to be part of that. If that can't happen in the household, how's it going to happen in the church? It's not, is it? It's not going to function. Okay? Notice also the descriptions in the scripture. Paul a lot of times relates his ministry to that of parents. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8. Notice what he says. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Okay, they could have demanded stuff because of their position, but what did they do? But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Paul compares himself to what? A nursing mother. He said, that's how I was with you. I was gentle. How should a mom be? Gentle. Caring for her children. Having a desire for them in the gospel. Then he goes down and says the same thing again uh, in verse in verse 10. You were witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. What's Paul saying here? We were held to a standard. Who held them to that standard? God did. They couldn't just be apostles and do what they wanted to. They were held to a standard that God had called them to. And Paul makes note of it, not bragging, but saying, listen, we were these things. We were holy, righteous, and blameless. Was he perfectly holy? No. Was he perfectly blameless? No. But his life was, there was, a no, there was a holiness about his life. There was a blamelessness about his life. There was a righteousness about his life. For you know how, like a father, here he compares himself to a father, with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says we carried the same function as a mother and father among you. And it was obvious what that should be. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 He's admonishing Timothy. This is what he says. And the Lord's servant must be, must not be what? Quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Evil from who? His congregation. Okay? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Timothy was to be patient. He was not to be quarrelsome. He was to teach. He was to receive the, the barbs of the sheep. Sheep do bite, by the way. Okay? Just for those who didn't know, they do bite. Okay? And he received those things. He received people in opposition, but he was faithful and patient, hoping that they would come to what? Repentance and believe. Parents, that's what you're going to deal with, isn't it? You're going to deal with your children. They're not going to go, oh, I'm so glad you're going to spank me today, Mommy. This is so wonderful. Where do we go to do this? They're not going to do that. Okay, now they need to learn to submit to this, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you're going to deal with the sinful nature of your children, which is just as entrenched as your sinful nature was. And you're going to have to be not quarreling. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to teach. You're going to have to be gracious and continue to, be, to persevere. And sometimes you go, is this going to work? Is this going to happen? Is there going to be change that takes place here? Is it all lost? No, it's not. Faithfully do what God calls you to. And God, who's with you in the process, will work things out. Okay? Let's look at some examples of biblical discipleship. So we look, a good description of biblical discipleship is what? The, the Father. The pastor. 
And fathers, to become pastors, need to be what? Be faithful in their own homes. Examples of biblical discipleship, the best one is Jesus and his disciples. Jesus lived with these men for three years. He didn't just say, hey, tell you what, I'll be at Mount, at the Mount of Olives at 9, from 9 to 11, I'll have a teaching session. And then I'll go back to my pad, and I'll come back later, from 1 to 3, I'll have a teaching session. He lived with them. He modeled the life before them. And he had relationship that was deep and abiding. And here's the thing, the very Son of God, who has all power on heaven and earth, did not abuse his disciples. He lived within the confines of the scripture as he dealt with these men, because that's who he is. All these parameters we have to follow to keep our sinful nature in check, Christ kept them perfectly. And these men loved him. Remember, remember John 13, when he takes him to the room, and he gets down, he wraps a cloth, towel around his waist, and he sits down and he washes their feet. The very Son of God washing the disciples' feet. He tells us in John 13 that he loved them, and that he was going to lay his life down for them because they were his friends. We saw in the Bible study um, a couple of weeks back in, in John 11, here he has this wonderful relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He had all kinds of relationships, discipleship relationships. Now look at Paul and Timothy. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul took on Timothy, whose father was a Greek, and whose mother and grandmother basically raised him in the scriptures. And Paul disciples him. And it comes out in the passage, 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. He's talking to Timothy. Timothy is in charge of the church at Ephesus. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He's admonishing Timothy. He loves Timothy. He says, the way you do this is you command and teach. You you're not afraid to preach and teach the truth. And your life needs to line up with all this. Line your life up with this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you've been given uh, by prophecy when you were at the Council of Elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this so that by doing this you may save yourself and your hearers. Father, that's a great passage for you to learn, fathers and mothers. Watch your life and your doctrine closely, because your children are watching. And he said, Timothy, you should so give yourself to this that people notice you're making progress. See, parenting is not about how do I use the rod. That's part of it. But parenting is first becoming an avid follower of Christ and your children being able to be have a front row seat watching it. And then look at Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Now we see this relationship with Timothy and Paul. 2 Timothy 1, 2 through 7. To Timothy, my beloved child. What a statement. And it wasn't, it wasn't derision, was it? It was honor. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. There's a discipleship right there, isn't it? Praying for Timothy day and night. As I, remembered, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of what? Power, love, and self-discipline, and self-control. 
That's what we need in parenting, isn't it? A spirit of power, love, and control. Paul loved this man, who was not his natural son. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, says it again, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned, heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, listen, I've been teaching and teaching and teaching. What I've, what I've said to you, you tell others. That's discipleship. You learn it, you pass it on. Your prayer as a parent is what you've taught your children to be passed on to your grandchildren and to others outside your family. And finally, 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11. He's talking to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He said, Timothy, you've been so intimately involved with me, you've seen all that that's gone on in my life. That's why the home is a wonderful laboratory for discipleship. It's a wonderful laboratory for child training. But it starts with relationship. If you provoke your child to anger to the point there's no more relationship there, you can forget discipline and instruction in the Lord. Well, I tried. No, the relationship was already shattered. It's time for us to evaluate those things. Discipleship is about relationship. And having a relationship that's guided by the principles of God's Word. Just because we're an authority doesn't mean we can lord it over our children. We're under the obligation to obey the Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we've gone through all these examples of poor parenting, Lord, uh, you put your finger on our own hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to resolve by the power of the Spirit, to walk in obedience to your word. Father, give us grace to train our children, the little ones and the big ones, to walk in your ways and to become faithful to you. Father, we thank you for the relationship you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the Spirit you've given us to carry this out. Father, I pray as we continue in this series that you would help us to take the truth of your word and apply in our lives. Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the fruit that it brings, the joy that it brings. Father, we ask you to forgive us for our failure as parents. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for not being more diligent in the truth of your word. Father, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.